0: Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanhoyechurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought I'd tell you anyway. And the lady was like, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't really care. It's, that's a PennDOT road. Uh, it's a PennDOT problem. I said, all right, so should I, should I tell PennDOT? She said, no, they'll be by sometime, and they'll see it. And I was like, okay. I said, sounds good. I guess I'll check that off my list today then. And uh, anyway, I just I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I don't know. Like everybody has different uh, thoughts and experiences when it comes to the Bible. And, uh, and for some of us, the Bible is this thing that, you know, we grew up with. And so uh, we were taught that this thing is really important. It's a guiding thing for our life. And the lessons therein and the words that it said mean something really deep, really important. And, uh, and we need to live our lives by these words. And, and for some of us, we, we weren't taught that at all this thing was not a part of our upbringing. Other people, maybe. But us, not so much. Uh, for us, this was, this was somebody else's problem. This was somebody else's road sign. This was somebody else's thing to deal with. Uh, and so, so this morning, you know, as we, as we engage in the story of Easter, for a lot of folks in the world of church and in the world of Christianity, Easter is arguably the biggest deal in the year, right? Easter and Christmas, these are our, these are our biggest things. And for a lot of people out there, uh, it maybe it doesn't matter at all. That's somebody else's road and somebody else's roadside, okay? Um, so, so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take our morning to just read the story of the resurrection. I want to talk a little bit about it, but mostly I just wanna, I want to read it And and I want to point out just a couple of things that I think are important for us to know so that we don't miss them. Um, And I'm hoping you'll walk away knowing why there's some significance here. And and maybe there are things you've heard before. And I might not say something new to you this morning. But maybe you have gone through life um, thinking that this is somebody else's road sign. And just perhaps this morning, I might be able to help you see why it's your road sign. Um, And that's my hope, just maybe, it's your road sign. So if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to open up to John 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in these chairs. You know, there's like a special secret little pocket in these chairs. And in those pockets are these Bibles, and if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those and keep it. Um, We want you to do that. Uh, Brad said I can give away as many of these Bibles as I can. Um, So keep it, take it, it's yours. They're brown, if you take a Bible that's not brown, you probably took your neighbor's Bible, so don't take that one. But if you find a brown Bible, that is yours to keep. Um, But we're in John chapter 20, and that's where we're gonna stay this morning. Uh, and, And so what I'm gonna do is, we're gonna just read a little bit, I'll say a couple of things about the passage, and we'll just move on, and we'll just keep talking about it this morning. It's going to be on the screen, so if you don't have the Bible out, that's okay. We're going to throw it up on the screen for you, too. So lots of different ways to engage the text this morning. But one of the things that I think is important for us as Christians uh, at this church, uh, part of our denomination, our family of churches, is that we do dig into the Word. Uh, It is is great for us to talk about um, topical things but it is really important for us to also be grounded in scripture uh, because the word of God is important to us. Uh, If we're not grounded in this thing, then we're grounded in something else Uh, and that something else could be anything. But this thing is what we should be grounded in. So that's why we're going to take some time and just dig into the story this morning. This story is the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And that is what we're here to celebrate. That's what Easter is all about. So that's why we're choosing this story. And so all the stories in the past couple weeks that we've been talking about have led up to this moment. We've stayed in the Gospel of John, which was written by a guy named John, a disciple of Jesus. Uh, um, And so this disciple happened to be the disciple who lived longer than any of the other disciples. And that's one of the really neat things to know about John. Uh, All of the other disciples of Jesus who stuck around, lived after Jesus went back to heaven, they died, unfortunately, terrible deaths. They were martyred for spreading Christianity. John was the one who lived longer than anybody else. And so he wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Some of the, the writings of John are some of the most mature theology that we have. And so that's one of the reasons that we've kind of jumped into this gospel. So I'm starting in John chapter 20, verse 1. So here we go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. We'll just pause there. Mary had gone to the tomb of Jesus, presumably with some others. She says, We, right? It says, We, to mourn and cry. And what she finds is that the tomb has been disturbed, the rock has been rolled away from the front. Um, She immediately then goes and gets the disciples. And the disciples that she gets is Peter, who is kind of our head disciple. And then this disciple that Jesus loves, who is John. And I guess if you're gonna be the guy writing the story down, you can describe yourself however you want, right? So why not describe yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loves? So that's how he describes himself, disciples who Jesus loves. And what she says is, she says, they have taken the Lord, they. There's no specification here. She doesn't say who they is. We don't know who that is. Who is They. They could be grave robbers, but that seems unlikely because Jesus isn't rich. Jesus isn't a rich guy. His tomb isn't filled with lots of possessions and money and gold and trinkets and things like that. Um, So it's probably not that. They probably refers to Jesus' enemies, uh, which would have been the religious leaders. And so they probably, she's thinking in her head, might be the Pharisees or Sadducees that have come and stole the body. So, verse three and four, Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Again, if you're the guy writing the story, you also, are not just the guy who Jesus loves, you're also the fastest disciple out there, okay? Which is, I mean, come on, why not? I'm the swiftest and the one that Jesus loves. Um, If you've seen the show The Chosen, anybody seen the show The Chosen out there? Constantly they make jokes about this uh, as they're walking around being disciples together. They're constantly razzing on Peter for being a slow runner, okay? But hey, it's just funny. I, I think it's awesome. This is one of the things that make me appreciate Scripture is some of these very real things. You could see friends, you know, razzing each other about this kind of thing, right? I beat you to the tomb, and it's not done. You're gonna see him slip this in a couple more times. But anyway... Verses 5 to 10, let's read these together. Uh, this is, he is now, this is John. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So let's pause. John, John comes to this, the tomb first, right? Fastest guy. So he peeks through the entrance and he sees the linen strips, and it's, it's likely that John doesn't go in the tomb because, hey, decorum, right? Proper etiquette. Why would you enter the tomb? He peeks inside, but he doesn't go in. Peter, oh, Peter, Peter doesn't have the same hang-ups as a lot of other people. So when he does finally get there at his slow pace, he just bull rushes the door and heads right inside, and he sees everything laying there. And what does he see is that he sees the linen strips sort of laid out like a body just disappeared from beneath the linen strips. He sees the head wrapping just laying there kind of folded neatly. And, and if you think about it, the scene doesn't really make sense. Um, if somebody stole the body, why would they leave all of that stuff so neatly there? If you stole the body, that stuff would kind of be discarded haphazardly Or, if you stole the body, why would you unwrap it? You would take the whole thing and go, right? So Peter comes into this scene that's probably a little confusing. It doesn't quite make sense. As Peter is processing what he's seeing, John does finally come into the tomb, and he sees the empty tomb. And John records that he finally believes. What does he believe? Does he believe that Jesus has risen? No. No. He he clarifies that. He says, we didn't understand what was going on. We didn't understand that what what Jesus had been saying all along was that he had to rise. John believes the tomb is empty. John believes Mary's words, that something's gone. The body's gone. That's what he believes. And so Peter and John, I think it's kind of funny. This is such a man thing, I think. Um, Peter and John are like, okay, Uh, it's gone. What can we do? Nothing. (laughs) Let's... Go home. (laughs) So they leave, right? They don't stick around. That feels like a guy thing to do to me. So they just leave, and Mary sticks around, and all the good stuff happens next, okay? Uh, Which I think is, is hilarious. So verse 11 and 12, let's read that. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, Mary doesn't see them as angels, by the way. Um, John, who's writing the story, knows that they're angels. He's writing with, you know, 20-20 hindsight. He's telling us that those are angels, but Mary's crying. She's distraught. Her eyes are, are blurry. She's... In the midst of trauma over the missing body of her Messiah. It would be better for us to say that Mary saw, looked into the tomb and she saw two people dressed in white sitting there. Later, Mary realizes that these are angels. But if she thought even for a moment, in the moment, that these were angels, Mary's whole demeanor and countenance would have changed. She would have thought there's something supernatural going on here. The crying would have stopped. Verse 13, they asked her, the angels asked her, woman, by the way, that's not offensive. That would have been a proper way to address a woman back then. Woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. And we'll pause again. I I can't say this enough. Mary is in in the deep pain of tragedy um, of the crucifixion. The crucifixion just happened days ago. Mary's present at it. She watched it. She's now in the trauma of, of knowing that the body is missing somebody robbed the grave and the body is gone she doesn't even ask why are there people sitting inside the tomb she's just focused on the fact that the body's gone she can't find her lord and then when she's looking into the tomb she turns and she sees another person and the writer of our gospel tells us that this person is jesus but again mary has no idea that this is jesus through all of that trauma and all of that tragedy, through the blurry eyes of crying, she thinks that it's the gardener. And I mean, she says to the the gardener, if you took the body, tell me where it is and I'll go get it. Now tell me how she expects to be able to go and get a full grown man's body and then put it back she's not thinking clearly i mean she is if you have ever been in grief trauma tragedy and all of that you can imagine the place mentally where mary's at she's not thinking clearly and that's i want to just pause for a moment because the next verse is i think really important and really essential verse 16 is is huge the next verse tells us something really important and we're going to see it in more than one place in scripture something I want to highlight for you this morning. It's something that I've found to be really powerful. Even though Mary is going through all of this trauma and tragedy and grief, even though she misses the angels and misses the identity of the man in front of her and thinks that it's the gardener, she thinks she can move this full-grown man's body, there's one thing that snaps her out of it in just a moment. One single thing. It's her name. Jesus in verse 16 Jesus is going to say Mary and all of a sudden she's brought right out of all of it. See, names are never accidental in Scripture. Their their meanings matter constantly. Um, the name Adam in Scripture means earth or ground. It comes from the same word that means ground. And and why is that? Because Adam is the first man created, and he's created from the dirt of the ground. The name Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. Jacob was a twin of Esau, and the story of their birth is that when he was being born, he was holding on to the heel of his brother as they were born, and so he was named Jacob, heel grabber. Um, Abraham's first son was named Ishmael, And uh, Ishmael is a name that means God will hear. And if you can remember the story of, of his mother, his mother ran away from Abraham's camp because she was being abused. And God came to her and said, I see you, I see what's going on. Name your son, Ishmael, because I hear you. Names have always mattered in scripture. And because names matter, there's this important tradition of also giving a new name in Scripture. Uh, So so Jacob meant heel grabber, right? And and that's not a nice name, actually. Heel grabber wasn't a kind name. Heel grabber was a name that really meant somebody who got in the way. Somebody that was always kind of grabbing at your coattails. Somebody was always grabbing at your back. Somebody was always trying to, to kind of have what you have. And... If you know the story of Jacob, you know that Jacob stole the firstborn blessing. Jacob was constantly getting in the way. Jacob went and ran away, and then he lived with an uncle, and he married the wrong woman. And Jacob got in his father's way, his brother's way. Jacob got in his uncle's way. Jacob got in his own way. And when Jacob finally decided to get right with God and then returned to his family's home, No matter what the cost was going to be of coming back to his brother, even if his brother was going to kill him, Jacob met on the road an angel, and he wrestled with that angel all night. And it was because he wanted a blessing. He wanted the angel to bless him, and he wasn't going to stop wrestling until the angel blessed him. And even though the angel knocked his hip from his socket, he wouldn't let the angel go. So the angel decided to then rename him Israel. And the name Israel means one who wrestles with God. Even our beloved disciple Peter didn't start out as Peter. He started out as Simon. And when Jesus was questioning the disciples, his few gathered disciples about who the crowd said he was, the disciples spoke up and said, well, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're Jeremiah. Some people say that you're another prophet. And Jesus said to them, well, that's what the crowd say. Well, what do you say? And Peter was the only one to speak up. And Peter said, well, you are the Messiah. You're the son of God. And Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you. You shall now be called Peter, which means a rock. And upon this rock I shall build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Renamed in that moment. Even a Pharisee, Someone who wrote most of the New Testament of our Bible, a guy we call Paul, started out as a Pharisee named Saul. Pharisee of Pharisees, educated beyond most Pharisees, feared by everyone. His job was to hunt down Christians, believers. And in the midst of hunting them down to arrest them and sometimes kill them, he was met with a bright light that knocked him from his donkey. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, why why do you persecute me? Why? And Saul was blinded and he spent days in darkness until God called a Christian, a Jesus following, God fearing Christian, to come to Saul, lay his hands on Saul, and heal his eyes. And when Saul's eyes were healed, instead of persecuting Christians, Saul decided to follow Jesus. And when he decided to follow Jesus, Saul took on a new name, the name Paul. And Paul is a name that means humble. Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who sung his own praises, his own education, and hunted down Christians, was no more. But instead, we had an apostle named Paul. And if you look in the writings of Paul, Paul is constantly talking about how he is the greatest sinner, Before he ever calls anybody out, before he ever corrects anybody else, before he ever does anything, he always talks about how he is the greatest sinner. Humble, right? Nothing, names mattered in biblical times. They were never random, they were never careless. Saying someone's name can be one of the most commonplace things in someone's life, right? And yet it can be one of the most penetrating sounds that you'll ever hear. Go to a playground and listen as all the kids are shouting. But go to a playground as a mother and wait until one of the children shouts mom. And suddenly it changes everything, right? your name can be one of the most penetrating things or one of the most commonplace things. Now, keep that in mind. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, Jesus tells her not to hold on to him, and that's not him saying, don't touch me. Sometimes we read that and we think, oh, Jesus is, you know, resurrected body and he doesn't want to be touched. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you don't have to hold on to me because I'm not going anywhere. Her first thought is probably, I just found you. (laughs) Your body was gone and missing, and now you're here, and I'm not letting you go. You just died on a cross and disappeared for three days, and I just found you, and I'm not letting you go. And he's saying, you don't have to hold on to me. I'm not going anywhere. I've not yet ascended. You can go and tell my brothers that I'm alive, okay? You can go. It's okay. I'm not leaving, I'm not ascending yet to the Father, but I will. So go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. When Jesus tells Mary to go and share the news that he lives with the disciples, he makes Mary the very first evangelist. She's the very first proclaimer of the risen Christ. And I'm gonna take the opportunity because I don't get this opportunity very often to say this. For those who question the God-ordained role of women in the church, perhaps that very question itself is not a God-ordained question because Jesus did not stand there and wonder if Mary was worthy of taking that message Jesus did not stand there and wonder if she was capable of taking that message. Jesus did not stand there and wonder if she was created, gifted, or able to take that message. Jesus stood there and saw his disciple, his follower, one of his created beings, and said, Take this message. And Mary heeded the call. It is that simple. And in taking the call, she became the very first evangelist. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after this, he said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when, he saw, when they saw the Lord. Everything that Mary experienced at the tomb happened that Sunday morning. Everything that happens in this room happens Sunday night, same day. The doors are locked, and yet somehow Jesus gets in. We, we don't know a lot about what this resurrected body is like. That's something that we always wonder about. It's something we always talk about. It's people speculate about that. What we do know is that Jesus is somehow recognizable, and yet the wounds are still present, and yet a locked door cannot stop him. And the disciples are quite overjoyed to see him, as you can possibly imagine their teacher and their Messiah lives. Verse 21 and 23, these are the last verses that we'll read from the story. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In each of the stories that we read leading up to John 20, in all of these, uh, the series that we've done, these I am statements, Jesus kept saying, kept repeating the same thing. He said, I have been sent by the Father for one reason, and that was that you might believe and have eternal life. He said it over and over and over and over. I have been sent that you might believe and then you would have eternal life. That you might believe and that you would have eternal life. Now Jesus turns to the disciples and said, as I have been sent, I am now sending you. He's giving them the mission. He's passing the mission on to them. Sometimes we as Christians wonder, what is our job? What is our mission? John simplifies it down, and this is one of the greatest things about John as an author, as a gospel. It's one of the reasons why when we give out one book, sometimes you'll see this, we give out just the gospel of John. Because John simplifies things in a way that no one else simplifies things. The mission is quite simple, and sometimes we overcomplicate it. I don't know why we like to overcomplicate it. It's such a shame on us as a church, as a, as a bunch of Christians, we overcomplicate things. The mission is simple. Jesus said over and over and over, I have come that you might believe and you might have eternal life. And now as I have come, I am now sending you that you might go into the world, and help others believe so that they may have eternal life. Period. Full stop, end of story. And, and if you think that I'm oversimplifying it, you can actually jump down in chapter 20 Because verse 30 clarifies why John even wrote the gospel. He says this Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Pretty simple. We don't need to overcomplicate this thing. Jesus said, as God sent me, I am sending you. And then he goes on to say, and in order to help you do that, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to breathe on you. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives the Holy Spirit to the disciples. Now I can, can kind of picture in my head, some people are like, ah, you know, Nick, I, there's some, some other stories in Scripture about the receiving of the Holy Spirit. I like those stories better, you know, like tongues of fire and things like that. Yeah, you know those probably make a better movie. Um, but let me let me tell you why I like this one a whole lot. This connects in a whole different way. I think I think I can make the connection if you just give me a minute to do it. The Septuagint is this. It's this big fancy word. But the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And um, they didn't call it the Old Testament then. They would have called it like the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Hebrew Scriptures. About 300 years before Jesus lived, there were 70 or 72 Jewish scholars that got together, and they translated the Hebrew Scriptures to Greek. They did it because someone paid them to do it, somebody that was royal. But also, it was a good idea because there were less and less people speaking Hebrew. By the time Jesus was born, a lot of Jews actually didn't read Hebrew anymore. Greek had taken over. By the time Jesus lived and died and went to heaven, his followers were writing the letters that we now call the New Testament. And when they were writing the New Testament letters, they were not referring to back to Hebrew scriptures, they were referring back to the Greek ones, the Septuagint. When John says that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit into the disciples, he is using the exact same language, identical language, as when God Creates mankind in Genesis and breathes his spirit into mankind at the outset of creation. So, hear me. How cool is that? And also, that is so much like being given a new name. That is so like being given a new name and becoming a new creation after the resurrection of Jesus. God in Genesis creates this incredible world. It's beautiful, it is perfect, it is made in every way and shape and form just the way that he wants it. He has a relationship in the world that is perfect with his creation and then that whole thing is broken by this thing called sin. The journey that he begins with the life he creates, he begins it by breathing his spirit into mankind. That's what we learn in Genesis 1 is that he breathes his spirit into the mankind that he creates. And then that relationship is broken by sin. And in order to heal the world, he starts by creating a people, a community of people. They start off as a a tribe, they become a, a country, and then eventually they become a church. He sends his son into the world to show them the the way, the truth, and the life, to be the example and the sacrifice that no one in that tribe, that country, that kingdom, that church could ever be. And his son makes the sacrifice that no one could ever make. His son enters into death because no one else could do that. His son breaks the hold that death and sin have on the entire universe. And all it takes is that we would choose to believe and then we have eternal life. I've been sent into the world that if you believe, you may have eternal life. That is the key. That is the thing that unlocks it all. That's why he was sent. All we have to do is believe because Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, cannot be held by the grave. He is raised from the dead. He re-enters life. And in re-entering life, he invites each of us into new life. And then just like in that first moment, at the outset of creation, when God breathes his spirit life into the very first mankind, Jesus then, Christ, breathes Holy Spirit into his followers and sends them out into the world with a singular mission. Go, show the world the way, the truth, and the life that I showed you that they may believe and that they may have eternal life. That, that is it. That second breath, that second Holy Spirit breathed into us, it is like being given a new name. I think Paul captures it in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. Jesus kept saying it over and over and over. I am here that you might believe. And if you believe, you will have eternal life. That is how the adventure begins. That's the beginning of the whole thing. There is so much adventure left. Sometimes Christianity and the church makes it seem like the adventure, the end, the finish line is believing in Jesus. If we can just get people to believe, then we've done our job. And I'm telling you, that is the starting line because the adventure just begins when you believe. There is so much good stuff left. Friends, just believe eternal life begins at that point, and there's a whole bunch of life and adventure just waiting for you. There's there's just 30 seconds. One more connection I want to make, because I think it gets even better. I think it it helps answer that, that final question, the one I've been pushing this whole series on. Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you follow God? Why would you do that? I hope you have formulated an answer over these last number of weeks. Why do you follow Jesus? As a new creation, you are promised a new name. John also writes this book called Revelation at the very end of our Bible. And in Revelation, Jesus promises that he will give us a white stone with a new name on it and it's a new name known only to you and God. It's not for anyone else to know, it's for you to know. God and you. It symbolizes that you are a new creation. And and one of the most wonderful things about it is that it is given to you on a white stone because in biblical times, in the day and age of Jesus, an official or a judge who was presiding over a judicial case would show their ruling on the case by handing out a a black stone for a guilty verdict or a white stone for an innocent verdict. And so when Jesus promises to give you a white stone with a name, a new name known only to you and him, he not only gives you that new creation, new name, he gives you an innocent verdict. You are a new creation with a new name simply by believing made possible because he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. 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 Because he is risen, we too are risen with Holy Spirit breathed into us with Holy Spirit Given to us to send us into the world with mission, not complicated mission, quite simple. A mission simply to share the good news that you have already been given, the good news that the work is done. You just get to be the bearer of the best news ever, not the bearer of bad news Not the bearer to say, you've got to jump through a million hoops. The bearer of the best news to say, the work is complete. All you have to do is believe. And eternal life is yours. And then you also get to be a bearer of that good news. And you're a new creation with a new name and a white stone as innocent. Why? Because he is risen. risen. Then let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.